I give you my apologies for my poor voice this week. Pretty much every year when I come to annual conference, um, pretty much by Monday night, my voice is starting to crack, um, and that's okay, but usually I've been well, but this year I got a bit sick at the end of last week, and so came in, my throat was already a bit sick, and so it's been a bit of a uh, struggle for you to hear me clearly, but someone said, oh, no, that's good, because it's sort of, it's difficult to sort of really hear, it makes us pay attention. <laughs> I hope it hasn't distracted you. I'm not in danger of falling over and dying, like, don't get too worried, but, and so uh, I had a lovely moment, though, when I, I sent out a, a letter to a, a bunch of prayer and financial supporters who make it possible for me to be part of the EU day by day. They provide all the money to make that possible and they support me in prayer. I sent out a quick newsletter, which was a bit late. I sent it off on Tuesday morning and said, hey, annual conference has started. I'd love you to be praying. And I had a whole list of prayer points. My last very point was, oh, by the way, I'm a bit sick. My voice is pretty shot already after Monday. Can you please pray? And I received all these lovely emails back from people saying, oh yeah, we're praying for annual conference, I've been praying now for it and I hope your voice goes, so isn't it great that we're here rejoicing in God's work together and there's all these other people out there, some of who came last night, but there's, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people out there who are praying for this week for you, isn't that great, it's a wonderful thing to be part of God's family. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about tonight, the great blessing that is. So last night we explored what it means to be justified through faith. We saw that genuine faith shows itself in all sorts of action. And tonight we're looking at what sort of actions spring from that genuine faith. Or to put it another way, what does it mean to live as someone whom God has justified? What impact will it have on you? What impact does it have on us as the Christian family, community, together? And so the starting point tonight is the connection between being justified and the Holy Spirit. There is a deep connection between justification, God's promise to Abraham and the Spirit. Now we looked at Galatians chapter 3 a, a few times this week. It's a key passage for putting God's work of justification into a bigger biblical theological context. It's there on page 41. So let's open it up and have a look. Page 41. Galatians 3 verse 8, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. For this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham, who believed. As we've heard before this week, that blessing mentioned there was that all who believe, along with Abraham, are justified. God declares you righteous as an act of sheer grace. So let's now pick up Paul's argument from verse 13. We're reminded that Jesus' death is key. Have a look, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, and here's the key bit that we're going to focus on now, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Notice there, the Spirit through faith. It's not just justification that comes through faith in Jesus, we also receive the Holy Spirit through faith. So have a look at the diagram there on your page. I've got the promise of justification made to Abraham, 
And that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and made available for all who put their faith in him. And the promised Holy Spirit is then poured out on those same believers. And they move from being in the flesh, at the bottom right of the picture, to in the Spirit. Justification and the Holy Spirit are both given to us by God through faith. And this is key to understanding what the justified life looks like then for you and me. See, we, what we have is an objective, external basis for our justification, that's Jesus' death and resurrection, combined with the subjective, internal work of the Holy Spirit in generating faith, in uniting me to Jesus and his death and resurrection, and in changing my heart, growing me in obedience to Jesus. Paul brings both of these together in that passage in Galatians 3, which we just read. But actually, he repeatedly brings these two gifts of God together. They belong together as God's objective external work for us, justification, and his subjective internal work in us, the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've spent a lot of time this week looking at Romans and Galatians. You might have noticed that. It's two letters in the New Testament of Paul where he speaks a lot about justification. So they were naturally that we would end up using a lot of passages from those particular letters. In fact, I think by the end of the week, we pretty much will have looked at almost everything Paul said in those two particular New Testament letters. And it's notable that in both those letters, after he speaks about justification, Paul goes on to speak a lot about the new life in the Spirit. You see that same movement in both Romans and Galatians. That's not him just moving to another topic. The new life in the Spirit is how you go about living the justified life. So let's dig down into the radical nature of what God has done in you. You're no longer in the flesh. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So it turns out, there really are only two types of people in the world. But it's not people who understand jazz music and those who don't. Nor is it the people who live in the Sutherland Shire and everyone else. See, they really think like that. They really do. It's just like a little button. You can press it and guarantee they'll react every time. Resist temptation, Rowan. Resist temptation. Okay. Interestingly, the two groups of people, it's not actually either the Jews and then everybody else, the Gentiles. That's not the fundamental distinction either. The fundamental split into which every single person falls one way or the other is those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. Now, you might be sitting there mindful of all the different ways that you give in to sin. And so you might be assuming that those who are in the spirit must be super spiritual types 
while we're stuck in the flesh. But that's not what Paul says next. Remember, Paul is just writing to regular Christians like you and me. Look at what he says to them, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. Since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, though your body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So if you put your faith in Jesus, you belong to Jesus. That means His Spirit is now in you, no doubt about it. Even though your body will still die as a reminder and an effect of our sin... You have been justified, righteousified, and having been justified, Jesus has poured out His Spirit into your heart, and that Spirit means you have eternal life. Notice at the end of verse 10, Paul again ties together Spirit, life, and righteousness, or justification. Spirit and justification brought together again. Now, this seems like a good moment to go back and cover something that I skipped over on Tuesday night. There was a section, see I do eventually get back to some of it, Um, there was a section at the bottom of page 26, way back when, with the heading, Jesus raised for our justification, which is something we read earlier in Romans from chapter 4 verse 25, I'll read the verse for you, Jesus was handed over to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What does that mean? I mean, I understand that Jesus died to take the guilt and penalty for my sin so I can be declared righteous. That makes sense to me. But what does it mean he was raised for our justification? Well, the New Testament talks about Jesus himself being justified, or often it's translated as vindicated, but it's the same word. Jesus being justified in his resurrection by the Spirit. Vindicated in the Spirit, meaning he was justified. He himself was vindicated, justified by the Spirit in his resurrection. We share in his death where he bears our sin and we also share in his resurrection, his vindication, his justification, where he now lives a new eternal life to God. See, if Jesus wasn't raised there would be no new life to enter into, no new life in the Spirit, no eternal life in which to share. The full consequence of being declared righteous is more than just your sins are taken away, it's righteous, the new life with God now that He's always wanted for us. I'll give you an analogy. I'm sure it's got problems, but I'll give it to you anyway. Imagine you are in a courtroom and you are on trial. They've brought you out of the holding cell, still wearing your prison clothes. Prison clothes. The judge is about to give her verdict on you. And she says, to your relief, you're justified, you're, you're acquitted. No condemnation for you. But then they take you back to the cell. Now that's, that's not much of an acquittal, is it? You've just been cleared of all charges, but you're still locked up. You're still enduring the penalty. There's no life in this verdict. So it's hardly what justification should really mean. Well, I think it's the same if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There will be no new life 
for us to enter into. There might be no charges against us, but we haven't really escaped the penalty. Remember, death is not part of God's good plan. He wants us to live forever with him in the new creation. That means sharing in Jesus' bodily resurrection. That's what full justification looks like. So Jesus was raised for our justification, that we might share in that same resurrection life. Paul's saying a similar thing here in Romans 8.10, when he says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Jesus is alive and the living Jesus has put his spirit in you because you have been justified. All of which means that if you've put your faith in Jesus, you are in the spirit. You are no longer in the flesh. That is the radical change God has already done in you. Have a look at the top of the next page, page 42. You can see my summary of it. You were in Adam. You were in the flesh, hostile to God, unable to please God. And as a result, you were condemned, destined for death. But now, by God's grace, through faith, you're in Christ. You're no longer in Adam. Jesus has picked you up, remember, and put you in his backpack. You're in Christ now. You are now in the spirit, not in the flesh. You are now justified, blessed with eternal life and peace with God, not condemned. This is who you now are if you've put your faith in Jesus. This is not who you will be. This is not who you aspire to be. This is who you are. This is the radical, fundamental transformation that God has effected in your life. Which raises a very practical question. How to live out this justified new life in the Spirit. Now let me give you a tip for reading the Bible. Uh, As you've seen lots of times this week, one of the big issues in the years just after Jesus' resurrection and the early days of the Christian church was the relationship of the new Christians to the Jewish community. Because you had Christians who'd come out of Judaism and other Christians who had Gentile backgrounds. They were trying to sort out What was the relationship now that they had as Christians to the Old Testament Jewish law? Were they as Christians meant to follow those old Jewish ways or not? They were big issues and you need to be aware of them because it comes up so often when you read through the New Testament. So the first thing that Paul says to Christians when explaining how to live out this justified new life in the Spirit is not something that you or I would probably think of. But for the early Christians, it was a massive deal. And it was, first of all, he says, whatever you do, don't go back to your old Jewish ways. So in Galatians, Paul was writing to Christians who were under particular pressure to follow Jewish practices, in particular circumcision. You're a Christian, people were saying, great, but the mark of God's people going right back to the Jews, was always circumcision, so you need to be circumcised too. But Paul won't have a bar of it. Galatians chapter 5, there, 1 to 4, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's pretty strong language for the Old Testament law. Listen, I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Once again, I testify to every man who lets himself be circumcised, he is obliged to obey the entire law. You who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. There's no going back to the old Jewish law keeping, says Paul. If you say that circumcision is necessary, then you're choosing law keeping as your route to justification and we know that that will end in failure. You've lost Jesus and you've lost grace at that point. So no going back to the law. Now, back under the law, the Jews, how did they live their life before Yahweh? Well, they used to offer sacrifices as part of their worship of Yahweh. And they were told to follow all the law's rules, keep that law book, the rule book. But with Jesus' death, we saw the other day, the law had ended. Christians are not under that old law code. Paul is adamant we don't go back to those things. But, but here's what's interesting. Instead, he says, we're now to offer a different type of sacrifice. We're to worship God, but with a different type of sacrifice. And we're to fulfill the law, but in a different way. So have a look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, at the bottom of page 42. Paul's just spent the first 11 chapters outlining the gospel of God and justification and the new life in the Spirit. And he then says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what sort of sacrifice does God want from you? What sort of sacrifice do we offer to God? You give Him you. You give Him you. We don't present a goat a sheep, a pair of doves, a bull. We present to him our bodies as a living sacrifice. I am a walking, talking sacrifice to God. As are you. A walking, talking, dancing and singing sacrifice to God. That's who you are. Everything I do, everything I say, my big decisions and my small decisions, I offer it all to God. That's how I respond to God's gracious justification of me. That's how I worship Him. Not with sacrifices in the temple, not merely with song, but by giving Him me, all of me, you give him you. And rather than going back to the old ways of the law, we now fulfill the law in a different way. Top of page 43, back to Romans 8, this time verses 3 and 4. 
to deal with sin, God condemns sin in the flesh, talking about Jesus, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How do we fulfill the just requirement of the law? Answer here, by walking according to the Spirit and not by the flesh. Okay, so if I walk by the Spirit in life, how does that fulfill the law? Look at what Paul goes on to say in chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. He uses the same phrase. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul's echoing Jesus here when Jesus was asked which were the most important commandments. He identified loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself. When we love one another, we are fulfilling the heart of the law. Now, whilst the details of that old covenant law no longer apply to Christians, in fact, as Galatians 5, we saw Paul's adamant that we must not go back to the law and seek to be justified through keeping the law, but the heart of the Lord, law, the central thing God asks of His people to love Him and to love your neighbor, that remains unchanged. We see the same emphasis when Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, that the only thing that counts is faith working through love. Or a bit later in the same chapter, there on your page, from Galatians 5, 13 and 14. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So, if you put your faith in Jesus, His Spirit is in you, and when you walk according to His Spirit and love God and love those around you, you fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. So, these are our big categories tonight for thinking about what it looks like to live the justified life. Being a living sacrifice, you give Him you, and serving one another in love. So, we're going to dig down into both of these. So, first, point three on page 43. How to be a living sacrifice. There are three contrasts the New Testament uses to describe what it looks like to offer your life to God. Uh, first, from Romans 6, your slave of a new master. Now, I've broken Romans 6 down into sections with some headings there to help you follow Paul's points. Paul's first point is that because you've come to Jesus and you're justified, you have a new master. Listen to what he says from Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. 
The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The key here is our union with Jesus through faith. What has happened to him happens to us because he's picked us up through faith and put us in his backpack. Verse 10 tells us he died to sin once for all of us. So our old self was crucified with him. And a point of that was to free us from slavery to sin. But we're also united to Jesus in his resurrection. As verse 10 says, the life Jesus lives now, he lives to God. And so, his point, verse 11, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a really vital point. Paul is not saying, look, pretend that you're dead to sin and alive to God. He's saying, you died with Jesus and you've been raised to new life with him. But it seems like Paul knows that it often doesn't feel like that's the case. So we need to remind ourselves constantly of this truth, that we died with Jesus and now alive with him. So he says we must consider ourselves that way. Understand that this is the reality and remind ourselves constantly of it. We're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what do we do with this? How do we live this out? Paul continues, verse 12. Don't let the old master sin rule. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Your body is an instrument. Maybe you're a bassoon. A French horn. I can't think of any cool instruments. Oh, that was uh, was a joke. I think I just offended a whole bunch of con students. Um, (laughs) Actually, he's not talking about musical instruments. Sorry. He means like surgical instruments, tools. Your body is a tool, an instrument that can do something. And what he says is, verse 13, don't keep on presenting your body to your old master sin as an instrument, a tool of wickedness. You don't serve that old master sin anymore. Be instead a useful instrument, a useful tool for God. Since God has justified you, declared you righteous, and now you belong to Him. Be an instrument, therefore, a tool of righteousness. You're declared righteous... Now live righteous. Don't let sin boss you around anymore. Sounds a bit silly, but you've had that experience, haven't you? Sin trying to boss you around. Happened to me the other day. I was sitting in my little room down here. 
Because, you know, I'd type it away, next talk, trying to get it done. And the evil one decided to try to, well, I was going to say distract me, but I think he was trying to do a lot more than just distract me. Just various thoughts came into my head. I'm typing away something. I'm probably typing about living righteously. And he's in my ear. Not literally, but, but the, the, the thought. What about... And you, you, sort of, you sort of stop and you think about their idea and you can feel the temptation. Do I want to indulge in that thought? Do I want to play around with that thought? That's not a, that's not a good thought. That's not a righteous thought. Do I want to play around with that? And you... Don't let sin boss you around. Don't present your body as a tool to your old master's sin, because you died to sin. You don't belong to him anymore. God has justified you, made you righteous, declared you to be righteous. You belong to him. You give him you. Paul then gets them to reflect on the choices they're making. Chapter 6, verse 15, whose slave are you? What then? He says, should we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, you, having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. Paul just makes the observation, we are slaves. We make ourselves slaves of whoever you choose to obey. I don't know if you've got a, a, a sibling, a brother or a sister. Imagine that you've got a, a younger brother or sister. Maybe you've got one, but just imagine you've got a younger brother or sister. And imagine that you just decided, I mean, it would be crazy, you'd never do this, but decided to do absolutely everything they said. I mean, a younger sibling, can you imagine? <laughs> that you would, you would do what they say. I mean, really. All the oldest are just going, <laughs> surely not. Um, but imagine that you had a younger sibling and you just said, I, do, I, I am going to do everything they say. You make yourself a slave, see, of whoever you just choose to obey. And so Paul's trying to get them to reflect on who are they really, who are you really serving in your life? Are we choosing to obey sin? But that doesn't fit with the radical transformation God has worked in our life. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We don't go indulging sin now that we've been set free from it. It's like making yourself sin slave all over. Why do you keep offering yourself back to sin? That's crazy. You're not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. His spirit. For he is in you. Paul then wraps up this section 
chapter 6, verse 20, it's so much better being a slave to God. He says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That is, you weren't justified. You had, you had no righteousness. So what advantage did you then get from the things of which you are now ashamed? How much, like when you were giving yourself to sin, really how much, how much further did that really get you? Really, what was the great advantage that you got out of that? And then he says, the end of those things is death. So much for being a slave to sin. It doesn't get you anywhere except death. But now, he says, you've been freed from sin and enslaved to God. The advantage you get is sanctification. You become more and more like Jesus. You become more and more holy. And the end of it, he says, is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You've been justified, declared righteous by the one true living God. He's done it as a sheer act of grace and love to you. Why keep on offering yourself to sin? It's crazy. It denies who he has made you to be in Jesus Christ. Because you're not in the flesh anymore. You're in the spirit. So offer yourself, every part of you, to God as instruments of righteousness, as tools of righteousness. What does that look like? Can we be more specific? Sure, turn to the top of page 45. The top of page 45, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Acts of the flesh versus fruit of the Spirit. Paul outlines what walking in the flesh and walking in the Spirit looks like. He gives some examples. Galatians 5, 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So clearly it's not a full list. I warn you as I did before, he says, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what it looks like to walk in the flesh. Have your life characterized by those sorts of things. To offer your body repeatedly as an instrument to sin. And then Paul continues, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Living the justified life is to walk in the Spirit and cultivate these fruit of the Spirit in your life. Now, having just looked at that list and just talked about this a bit, that might have raised some issues for you. Maybe there are things that you know... As a follower of Jesus, you need to confess to God. Old ways of sin in which you've been indulging and you know that as a Christian, it just doesn't fit with who you now are because you're righteous by God's grace. If that's the case, then listen to what God says here. Don't let sin rule in your body. Your old self died with Christ and now you belong to God. Worship Him with your body. 
all you say and do. Take hold of the forgiveness which is freely yours in Jesus and walk on in the Spirit, not in the old way of the flesh. And may I say, if there's a particular sin that you've been struggling with or a number of sins that you struggle with, struggle to put off, why don't you pray with somebody about that tonight? Grab a Christian friend and just say, look, I just, I need to talk to you about something and share it with them and get them to pray with you and bring it to Jesus together. Repent, receive forgiveness in his name and pray for his strength from his spirit within you to walk on in holiness before him. There'll be some EU staff workers down over here at the left of the stage uh, at the end tonight, please come and pray with them. Bring it to God. Now, if you stop and think about all of this, it might seem to you, if you sort of step back and just think, okay, what we've been talking about, it might seem to you that all that talk about being justified by grace and through faith, but isn't this talk starting to all sound like works again? <laughs> Well, the answer is yes and no. Um, Yes, we are talking about works, things you do, but no, we're not justified on the basis of these works. Nothing we can do can possibly earn or merit God's justification of us, since none of us are able to completely resist sin all the time. Praise God that one day, when Jesus returns and His work in us by His Spirit is complete, we will resist that all the time. But it's impossible for me to earn or deserve God's declaration over me that you are okay. So this is not justification by works. We're only justified by grace. Rather, these are some of the good works that flow from a genuine faith. This is the distinction between justification and sanctification. Let's clarify that distinction at the top of page 46. We know that justification means God's declaration over us that we're righteous, okay. But in theology, justification is often contrasted with sanctification. Now, sanctification is actually used in two different ways in the New Testament. I don't intend to get into that right now. But the way I'm using it here, it means growth in holiness. Growing in your character, your convictions, your passions and your priorities to become more like Jesus. As you grow in faith and hope and love and patience and kindness and the fruit of the Spirit, you're growing in your sanctification. Now, you can see a table there in your book. The basic difference between justification and sanctification, justification is Jesus' work for you, whereas sanctification is Jesus' work in you. And we're going to fill out the distinction here a bit more, and you might like to fill in the table as we go along. We'll put it up on the screen for a while, and we'll work our way through it. Can we think of some other ways of talking about this distinction between justification and sanctification? Yes, here's some I prepared earlier. First of all, justification is based in Jesus' work in His death and resurrection, whereas sanctification is Jesus' work in you through the Holy Spirit.
Moving on. Justification is that you are declared righteous, whereas sanctification is being made righteous, transforming you so that your life accords more and more with God's good will and purpose. Notice Jesus is doing both of them, right? Because of his work, you're declared righteous, and he's the one whose spirit is at work in you, making you more righteous. But you need to distinguish the two. Justification is a work that is finished. It's complete. You are justified. But sanctification is a work that's continuing. We will keep growing in sanctification until the Lord Jesus returns. We can add some more. Justification. In justification, there is no place for works as the basis of justification. But in sanctification, sanctification is a key place for works. In justification, justification is definitive. You can't grow in justification. You can't you don't get more and more justified. Whereas sanctification is progressive. You grow in sanctification, in your likeness to Jesus as he works in you by his spirit. Justification is about our standing with God. Whereas sanctification is about our nature as it is wrought by God. Uh, justification is an act of God about us that you can't see, whereas sanctification is an act of God in us that can be observed through the works that flow from it. And two last ones. Behold, stop complaining. Justification is declared on the basis of faith, whereas sanctification is lived out as an outworking of faith. And finally, justification is trusting in Jesus, sanctification being made like Jesus. Why does this distinction matter? Well, it's because there are always big problems if you look to your sanctification for your justification. That's trusting in our works, our obedience for our salvation, instead of trusting in Jesus' work, His obedience on my behalf. But it's also important to remember that you can't have one without the other. Justification and sanctification are distinct, but they're never separate. You can't have one without the other. That's like trying to have faith without any works, which we saw last night James calls a dead faith. That's not even a saving faith at all. We saw in the diagram last night that when we're united to Jesus by faith, we share all of his benefits. We get justification and sanctification. They're different things, but we get them both. So what we've been looking at tonight, as we look at what it means to offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice is the sanctification response of someone who's been justified. 
This is what the life of faith looks like. Of course, living the life of faith is itself actually the work of God's Spirit in you, so there's never a reason for human boasting. But what we've been speaking about tonight, walking in the Spirit, not in the flesh, this is what the justifying faith looks like when we live it out in maturity. Uh, Richard Lovelace points out that getting this distinction clear in your own mind is an enormous help for living for God. But it's worth pausing to notice the broader point he makes about how few Christians really live what it means to be justified. If you've got his quote there, you can see it. He says, Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. It's just he's, he's trying to make you think, have you really taken hold of what it means to be justified in Jesus? He continues, he says, Many have so light an apprehension of God's holiness and of the extent and guilt of their sin that consciously they see little need for justification, although below the surface of their lives they are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. Might that be you? Justification all seems a bit theoretical, not something that you desperately need. Well, hopefully this week you've started to realise just how much you need God's grace in your life. He continues, Many others have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification, drawing an assurance of their acceptance with God from their sincerity or their past experience of conversion or their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. I don't sin that much, so I must be all right. It's easy to look to your sanctification for our justification. You might not fall into the trap of thinking you need to keep the Old Testament law to be right with God, but we pretty easily start relying on the fact that we turn up to Bible study or church or the EU or at a practical level, We end up relying on our Bible reading or quiet time or all the ministry we do to convince ourselves we're justified. But that's looking to our sanctification for our justification, and that's a false path. Lovelace then points out the better way. He says, Few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform. You are accepted. What was the precious and powerful truth that I shared with you right at the beginning of the first talk, if you can possibly remember, back to Monday. We are justified. That is the precious and powerful truth of God. And when you get up in the morning and you make your way into the bathroom and you're cleaning your teeth or something to get ready to go to uni or work, wherever you go, you're there and you're bleary-eyed. Look yourself in the eye and say, praise God, you are justified. Start the day on that basis. And notice what Lovelace says. Few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand on Luther's platform. You are accepted. You're justified. Looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance. By alien, he means other, external to yourself. The alien righteousness of Christ means the righteousness of Christ that's entirely separated from me. And notice then this last bit. Relaxing in that quality of trust, of faith, 
which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. I think Lovelace makes a significant observation there. Rightly grasping our justification in Jesus will energize and increase our sanctification. Because as you keep putting all your trust in Jesus, grateful for all that he's done for you, that faith wells up in love and action. All right. Time for a mental break. Uh, I wasn't planning on playing a song tonight. I don't know if that's relief or, or sadness. Uh, but someone suggested it's good for my voice to take a break. So we're going to play a song, just for fun. Uh, now look, I wasn't planning to do this, so this is where we've ended up. Um, it's a song by rock and pop legend Lenny Kravitz. It's a song of thanks to God, the God who is the source of love and the rock to whom we can cling. When we come to Jesus, he gives us everything we need. Enjoy. Okay, so we've been exploring some of what it means to live as a living sacrifice. You give you to God. 
Part of what it means to be a living sacrifice and cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in your life is to live a life of love. Remember that love is the fulfilling of the law. So we're going to finish tonight by thinking a bit about serving one another in love, being the justified community. Right at the start of the week, I said that understanding justification radically changes our understanding of God. He's gracious and righteous. It changes our understanding of ourselves, that we're justified, no condemnation in Jesus. And it also changes our relationships with each other. Three ways that God's justification of us shapes us as a community of Christians. First, page 47. Because we're justified by God's grace, we welcome one another. We're focusing here on Romans 14 15. Because we've all been justified by God together, we don't condemn or judge each other. Romans chapter 14, verse 2. One person's faith in Jesus allows them to eat anything. But another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Don't worry, he's not having a go at vegetarians. The Christian community is one where we show grace towards each other, knowing that through faith, that person is justified by God and accepted, just as I am. So we let our differences in Christian practice, we make sure that that difference in Christian practice does not generate mutual condemnation or contempt. For God has accepted them, by grace, in Jesus, through faith. Now, the big issue in the first century when Paul wrote this was whether you had to obey the old Jewish law. And while Paul was absolutely adamant that obedience to the law was not required, he was also clear that if someone wanted to show their faith in Jesus by keeping parts of the law, maybe for reasons of conscience, maybe for evangelistic reasons, then that was fine. You've got to get that distinction, right? They're not, no one's obliged to follow the law, but if they want to as a genuine expression of faith in Jesus, then that's fine. You ought to accept them and not condemn or treat them with contempt. Note that there was a difference over in Christian practice. It's not over theological issues. The theological issue here was settled. You can eat whatever you like before God. Paul's not saying we shouldn't defend the gospel or seek to gently correct those who've got it wrong. Nor is this about area of sin. Because elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told to judge those inside the family of God when it comes to areas of sin. And we seek to bring one another gently to repentance. But this was a difference in Christian practice where both sides stemmed from genuine faith. And in that situation, Paul says, accept one another, for God has accepted both of you. So here's just one area where I think that might apply today. There are different views within the evangelical Christian church on the roles that sisters in Christ should take up in the Christian community. Some who have genuine faith in Jesus think the Bible teaches that sisters in Christ can lead and teach in any capacity within the Christian community. 
Some others who have genuine faith in Jesus think the Bible teaches that there are some roles in the Christian community that only brothers in Christ should take up. And then, again, there are differences, again, about which roles and functions maybe they think that should include. My point is not to explore this issue. My point is to observe that there is a real disagreement, that there are genuine believers on both sides, and even as we try to work out together what the Bible does teach on this matter, we're often in danger, it seems to me, of falling into either mutual condemnation or contempt. I've heard it talked about in those ways, by believers on both sides. That's not how we're to live together as God's justified, loving community. We keep our Bibles open and we seek to understand it rightly together. We're not afraid of anything that we learn from the Scriptures that God's given us. But as soon as we start condemning others whom God has accepted through faith or treating with contempt a sister or a brother whom God has accepted, then we're not living out our justification in a God-honoring way, it seems to me. Paul continues then in Romans 14 from verse 13 and talks about sacrificial building up. He says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. What does it look like to be a justified community of love? It looks like not seeking to please ourselves. Certainly not doing anything, even things that in Christ you might be free to do, not doing anything that might cause a sister or a brother in Christ to fall into sin. Rather, we seek to build up those around us to maturity in Christ. We seek to encourage them, to strengthen them, even if it means giving up things that I know in Jesus I'm actually free to enjoy. The priority is sacrificially building up you, not leveraging my freedom in Christ. In that way, we're just copying Jesus, aren't we? He gave us everything. Everything that I could ever need, as Lenny sang. Martin Luther put it very strikingly at the bottom of page 47. A Christian lives not in himself, but in Christ and his neighbour. Otherwise, he's not a Christian. He lives in Christ through faith and in his neighbour by love. Paul's final point here in Romans 15, Romans 15, 5 to 7. This acceptance of one another reflects Jesus' acceptance of us. He says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. The gospel that we're justified by grace in Christ Jesus through faith 
means that the ethnic-religious divide of Jew and Gentile was now irrelevant. As we saw Paul say earlier in Galatians 5.6, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. See, the gospel of justification in Jesus overturns the barriers and divisions erected by our culture. Not just Jew-Gentile barriers, all barriers between us are overturned through our unity in Jesus, by grace through faith. In Galatians 3, Paul says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Jesus have clothed yourself with Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, in that passage, Paul names three massive divisions in the culture of his day. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. He's saying none of that matters in Jesus because we're all children of God made one in Jesus Christ. The unifying nature of our justification in Jesus is just as radically countercultural today. In Jesus... Ethnic and racial gender barriers are overturned. God's gospel of justification gives a different vision of multiculturalism, a different God-given solution to racial prejudice and discrimination. It's a different way of valuing women as well as men, of valuing the elderly as well as the young, of valuing children as well as adults. Justification by grace through faith is a radically countercultural doctrine. And the church gathered around Jesus Christ, the church he has purchased with his own blood, is where the radical nature of the unity created by justification is lived out. Not without distinctions. It's not the abolition of distinction between parents and children or women and men or even Jew and Gentile. But there is a radical mutual acceptance and valuing and affirmation of one another as we have been made in Jesus, equally justified, equally humble recipients of grace. It's not a dissolving of our uniqueness into a monochrome, single culture. It's the embracing of our more fundamental common identity as children of God, as sisters and brothers in Christ, as recipients of grace, that then incorporates our differences, our cultures, that challenges and overturns some of those cultural distinctions and reframes and recalibrates others. Now, over the page, I'm going to leave you to read what Richard Lovelace said about being a community of grace, or rather how we often fail tragically to be a community of grace. And I've put there for your reflection 13 one another's, one another statements from the New Testament that can start to fill out what it looks like if we genuinely seek to love one another, to be a community of grace. I've put it there, you might like to discuss and pray about them tomorrow in review group, if that's something that your leaders would like to do. Let's move to page 49 and the final aspect of what it means to be God's justified community of love. 
proclaiming together God's greatness to the world. In 1 Peter 2, Peter writes about us, God's justified people. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. That's great, isn't it? That's Praise God for His mercy. That's who we are. But He has a task for us. He's made us, His people, with a privileged role in the world. You're God's own people, He says, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What are those mighty acts of God? The God who saved us? It's the gospel, the gospel about Jesus, God's Son, who loved us and gave Himself for us, so that in His death and resurrection you might be justified, accepted, with no condemnation and peace with God. That's what God's done. And part of our task together as His justified community is to proclaim that to the world, that the world that still needs to hear it. And we've got opportunities to do that this semester at Sydney Uni with the EU. I want to encourage you, do the Changing the World through one-to-one ministry equip course. We, we're hoping, actually, and this is, a, this is a crazy plan, but you've got to do crazy plans sometimes for Jesus, right? Here's a crazy plan. Every person in the EU do the Changing the World one-to-one course this semester so that you are equipped for a lifetime, a lifetime of doing discipleship and evangelistic one-to-ones. How long's the course, Laura? Somebody? Six weeks? Six weeks, says Patty from the deep, dark recesses of somewhere. Six one-hour sessions, six one-hour sessions to equip you for a lifetime to be reading the Bible with people. A lifetime. Now, what would it look like for 600, 800 people to try to squeeze into those equipped courses? This is where it gets a bit crazy. Well, we've said, look, we actually don't know. So what we'll just do is we'll run the course at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. every day of the week, Monday to Friday. And we've got sign-up sheets over there, and you can just go, well, I know I can do Tuesday at 3. I know I'm available then. Just go write your name up there and whatever details it asked for, and then we will just run courses at every single, as many courses as we need at every single one of those times. And that way, I, I reckon we could get six to 800 people skilled up in a course, and the great thing about the course is, part of the course is, you actually read the Bible with somebody. You actually read the Bible with a non-Christian. So then that's 600 people that we're reading the Bible with as well. So sign up anytime you can. Now, the thing is, if you're, there's one little trick. This is where it gets a bit crazy because at Tuesday at 3 p.m., all the EU staff are in staff meetings except me. So I'm the only one who can run it at 3 p.m. on Tuesday. Anyway, so that might be a big group, but that'll be all right. We don't know how it's going to work out, but we think, let's just do this. Let's all get equipped in one, one semester. Let's just do it and set you up for a lifetime of doing that wherever God takes you around the world. But then we've also get to invite our non-Christian friends this semester to evangelistic public meetings in weeks four and five. 
You also have this incredible opportunity to serve the less reached and the less resourced on campus by reaching out to international students on campus. You know, right, that one in three students at Sydney Uni are from overseas. One in three. When you walk around the campus, you go, one, two, overseas, one, two, overseas, one, two, overseas. <laughs> one in three are from overseas. One in four on the campus are from mainland China, where there is very little opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus and justification. Wouldn't it? Here's another crazy idea. Wouldn't it be cool if we all made, and I was trying to think, what's a reasonable number? Five? What, wouldn't it be, you don't know what I'm saying yet, so you're going, maybe five, I don't know, maybe, <laughs> let's all make five donuts. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's the one I'm going to say. Why don't we all make five international friends this semester? One, one in three students on the campus is from overseas, so it can't be that hard. Like, what happens if we all made five international friends this semester in order to try to share the gospel with them and love them? That would mean that we reach 3,000 international students in one semester with the gospel. That, that would be incredible. I don't, that would be incredible. I mean... It's not quite the book of Acts, that was 3,000 in one day, but that's all right, we could take a semester. What about reaching out to Muslim friends on campus? They often love talking about spiritual matters, they love it, but tragically, whilst they respect Jesus, they often hardly know anything about him, and what they do know is often not right. Do you see Muslim background students sitting there in your class, in your lab, in your tube? Have you stopped to say hi? Have you shown them some welcome? Have you sought to get to know them? If you're feeling a bit unsure about all this, do the cross-cultures equipped course to help you understand other cultures. Do the engaging with Muslims equipped course to help you understand Islam and what they think about Jesus. Grab hold of these opportunities this semester so that together we might be better equipped to proclaim Jesus now and into the future. Which raises my final observation and challenge. The opportunities to proclaim God's mighty deeds often uh, obviously aren't restricted to Sydney Uni campus. There's a whole world out there, as we've been hearing all week. We've been hearing about through our fantastic LRLR workers who've graced us with their presence this week. Now, having LRLR workers here at Ancon is a very deliberate strategy, it's and it's because it's just too easy for us to think that everywhere else is like here. It's not. We've been hearing of the needs of those less reached and less resourced around the world all week. We want to be made aware of those needs, not just for interesting information, not even just for our prayers. We want to know about the less reached and the less resourced because under God, we are actually in a position to maybe do something about it. You are in a position to maybe do something about it. You could do something on campus this semester to serve the less reached, less resourced. Reach out to an international student. Reach out to a Muslim background student. Go on one of EU's end-of-year mission trips. They all go to LRLR places. 
Use some of your free time to help out a church that has less resources than you. But what might you do beyond graduation? Could you apply for a job in Darwin or in southwest Sydney? Could you decide to just move house to Greenacre? I mean, you've got to move out of your parents' place sometime. You could keep a job in the city, but be part of a church reaching out to those in Greenacre and Lakemba who really do not have any true idea of who Jesus is. You could take your degree and use it overseas so you could be part of a God's less resourced church in a less reached place. This is not necessarily about giving up your profession to do gospel work. This is just thinking about where you might live and where you might church with people so that you could serve the less reached and the less resourced. You could do that. We take this as a serious challenge in the EU because we're aware of how great the needs are for God's gospel around the world and how blessed and how more resourced we are. Which is why I do want to encourage you to make the EULRLR pledge. You can see what it says up on the screen. I commit for the next five years to prayerfully consider going to serve the LRLR in cross-cultural Sydney, the rest of Australia or overseas. And I commit to doing something in the next 12 months to serve the LRLR with the gospel. Are you willing to prayerfully consider serving the LRLR and to do something towards that in the next 12 months? I want to encourage you to make that pledge. Now, just as an explanation, this is a bit different to the send me commitment from the other night. The LRLR pledge is about prayerfully considering, considering your future serving the LRLR. It doesn't commit you to going. You're just saying, I'm going to pray, genuinely prayerfully consider it. The solid bit that you promise to do is, I'll do something in the next 12 months, but that might be on campus. That just might be something local. The point is to prayerfully, seriously consider going somewhere to serve the less reached, less resourced. The Send Me commitment is different. It's not about location. It's about role. It's saying, I commit to giving myself to gospel work instead of other work. And it's not just prayerfully consider either. The Send Me commitment is saying, here I am, send me. It's a commitment for which, yes, God might not open the door in the end, but it's a commitment to actually seek to do it. So these two can obviously work together. One's about location, one's about role. But I hope that clears up a little bit of the confusion that some people have expressed. Tonight, I want you to encourage you to think about making the LRLR pledge, especially if you haven't done it before. But even if you have, you can always make it again. So on your chair, there's a form on which you can make that pledge, sign that pledge. It's also in your booklet, page 98. And if you've heard this before or maybe for the first time, you go, no, I'm happy to prayerfully, I'm happy to prayerfully consider that over the next five years. That sounds reasonable. That's not too much. I could do something in the next 12 months. Then I want to encourage you to make the pledge. Sign it. If God's moving in you to make that pledge, fill it out now in the next couple of minutes. And in a moment, after I pray, we're going to sing a song 
And during that song, if you want to make the pledge, then take your filled out form. And I want you, while we're singing, to move across and stick it on that LRLR pledge big sign over there. And there'll be Ancon team members there giving you pins or another stuff to stick it on the board. It's a way of turning your pledge before God into something physical, tangible. And we'll collect the info and we'll start to help you work out how you can action your pledge to serve the LRLR with the gospel. All right? So, if you want to make the pledge, start filling it out now and then in a moment we'll do it. But I'm going to, as you consider all that, I want to finish with some words from Howard Guinness. Howard Guinness was the guy who helped establish the EU 89 years ago, encouraging the pre-existing group of students meeting in the clock tower to come out of the tower and reach out to the campus with the gospel. Six years later, he wrote a little book, a little booklet, as he had been travelling around the world, meeting with university students, establishing groups to reach out with the gospel of Christ. And he wrote this little book, and this little book was called Sacrifice. And this little book went through many, many reprintings. It was, it was reprinted over the course of 40 years. Uh, and then this was part of the introduction it's got there. This booklet, he says, has been written as a result of observations made during the past six years whilst visiting many parts of the world, carrying the Christian message to the youth of the universities under the auspices of the InterVarsity Fellowship of Evangelical Unions. And then he says, It has been written urgently. Although addressed to Christian youth and especially students, it speaks of things which the writer is convinced the whole Christian church must face in the spirit of honesty if she is to arise and complete the glorious task set on her 1900 years ago, that of carrying the gospel to every creature. This book will frighten some. Let none who want a book to soothe read on. We face the cross. And then that's the introduction. And then you get into the book on sacrifice. It's, it's a great read. It's a bit weird in points. I mean, it's from 1930s. You know, he talks about having cold baths and their value. Like, it's a bit weird in parts. But, <laughs> but then this, this next bit I've got here for you is how it finishes. How, how the whole book comes to a climax. He says, Where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death? Where are those who will lose their lives for Christ's sake, flinging them away for love of Him? Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in His service? Where are His lovers? those who love him and the souls of men and women more than their own reputations or comfort or very life? Where are those who say no to self and who take up Christ's cross to bear it after him, who are willing to be nailed to it in college or office, home or mission field, who are willing, if need be, to bleed, to suffer and to die on it? Where are the men and women of vision today? Where are those of enduring vision? Where are those who have seen the King in His beauty, by whom from henceforth all else is counted but refuse that they might win Christ? Where are the adventurers, the explorers, the buccaneers for God? 
who count one human soul of far greater value than the rise or fall of an empire. Where are those who glory in God-sent loneliness, difficulties, persecutions, misunderstandings, discipline, sacrifice, death? Where are the men and women who are willing to pay the price of vision? Where are the men and women of prayer? Where are those who, like the psalmist of old, count God's word of more importance to them than their daily food? Where are God's men and women in this day of God's power? He'd travelled the world. He'd seen the need. He talked to students at Sydney Uni. Where are God's men and women in this day of God's power? And then he has a little coda right at the end. He says, this booklet will not have fulfilled its purpose if it has only awakened conscience and not precipitated action. We must act. It is to help you to decide about this great issue that a prayer is appended here with a space below for your signature to witness to the fact that you make it your prayer and thus pledge yourself to action. We didn't invent the pledge. Are you willing to make the pledge? Prayerfully consider how you might serve, for the next five years, prayerfully consider how you might serve the less reached and the less resourced in cross-cultural Sydney, rest of Australia, around the world, and to do something to serve any less reached, less resourced people in the next 12 months. Let me lead us in prayer. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that, undiminished, rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know thee, renew before your throne the solemn pledge we owe you to go and make you known. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours, fired by the same ambition. To you we yield our powers. O Father who sustained them, O Spirit who inspired Saviour, whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired. Father, from cowardice, defend us, and from lethargy, awake. Forth on your errand, send us to labour for your sake. And to you be all the glory and praise, Father. Amen.